0: Yes, I've experienced stigma. I still experience it, but it doesn't affect me that much. I sort of expect it to, in a, in a certain way. I decided,
1: you know, I could sit in a corner and cry for the rest of my life, or I could get up, tell Josh's story, try and make a difference, try and make sure no other
0: family had to go through what we went through. I knew that the bottom for my kids would be death. I knew it. So, I wasn't willing
2: really You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them.
3: By many metrics, Losing a child is one of the most difficult and grievous things to go through in life. Due to the war on drugs and an increasingly contaminated drug supply, more and more parents are outliving their children. It seems as if our political system and proponents of the drug war have become better than ever at leveraging the types of fear, uncertainty, and sometimes even tribalism that occur When we lose someone we love. The stories of families who have lost loved ones have been weaponized by politicians who wish to enact drug-induced homicide laws. Are we really pretending that we can bust our way out of this problem after a hundred years or more of failed drug war policies? Well, not everyone has lost their mind. Amid all of this, there are some voices of reason. And we hope to platform those voices here on Narcotica. I'm Aaron Ferguson, your co-producer, and we've got a special interview for you today with two moms who have formed a coalition. Moms Against the War on Drugs under the banner of True Love Ain't Tough are doing some really great work. The two legends we'll be speaking with today are Gretchen and Tamara. Gretchen is the executive director and co-founder of A New Path, Parents for Addiction Treatment and Healing. A nonprofit that works to reduce the stigma associated with substance use through education and compassionate support, and to advocate for therapeutic rather than punitive policies. A New Path has distributed over 19,000 kits of Narcan in San Diego County and has a reported 2,373 overdoses reversed. She's leading the International Moms United to end the War on Drugs campaign that was started in 2009. And she has two grown sons who are in long-term recovery from heroin addiction. Tamara is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist in private practice in Peoria, Illinois. She lost her 16-year-old son Joshua to an accidental heroin overdose in 2012. Since that time, she's devoted her time to advancing harm reduction practices throughout central Illinois. She and her husband Blake started Jolt Foundation, which focuses on awareness of the overdose epidemic and overdose prevention. Multiple community organizations and treatment providers have been trained and given naloxone through Jolt Foundation. And Tamara is also the executive director of GRASP, Broken No More. She's also a buprenorphine provider for both males and females. And she continues to fight for the rights of people who use drugs and to eliminate the shame and stigma that society places on this group of individuals. We hope you enjoy the show today and really appreciate your support of our ongoing production. We want to continue to bring you real information about drugs and the people who use them, and your support really helps us to keep doing that. If you're interested in getting involved and you're not already, you can go to our website that will be listed in the show notes, pop into our Patreon page, or you can even buy swag from our shop thanks for listening today, guys. Hope you enjoy the show
2: both of you i 'm so excited to have you on Narcotica. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Thank you for inviting us
2: you know to start for listeners who have never heard your story before, can you tell us a little bit about how your advocacy work began uh, let 's start with you gretchen
0: okay um twenty three years ago i, I started i co founded a new path um, with two other parents we We all had um, Children who were struggling, and when I say children, it's young adults, because um, you're a mom forever, right? <laughs> um, who were struggling uh, with substance use disorders and uh, compounded by a criminal justice system that misunderstood and mistreated the problem. Um, my older son uh, was 20 when he was arrested for marijuana possession, which started 11 years of cycling in and out of prison uh, for uh, relapse but all drug-related nonviolent offenses um, which was a tremendous waste of human potential and and a real trauma for the family um so i started a, a new path because i i wanted to change powerlessness into empowerment i um, i i felt like um, it was basically lack of uh, uh, the understanding of the basic nature of, of substance use disorders, that we'd allowed the criminal justice system to take it over rather than it being handled as a public health problem. So we've done nothing but exacerbate the problem because of the war on drugs. So when I started, I I spoke out because I felt like so many families were keeping this sort of as a shameful thing in their closets and they weren't they weren't uh, dealing with it. And when I started speaking out, I would call it accidental advocate, right? Accidental at, at, at activist. We, um, I, I felt like it gave permission to so many other parents to start speaking out and then to be truly a leading stakeholder at the table because we weren't being asked as parents um, what we felt was going on. We were we were treated as if we were part of the problem, or if not the problem itself. Um, And so we uh, we started speaking out and inviting other people to our stakeholder table and and the new path just kept growing. And then in 2009, we started Moms United to end the war on drugs so that we could expand, lift up other mothers' voices across the country that were doing similar work. My second son turned out that he had the, the same disorder, if you will, and uh, struggled for 20 years. but the criminal justice system always made things worse, always created roadblocks um, and and uh, you know I, I, I live for a day that we can see treatment on demand um, but not everybody even needs treatment. We just have to understand that this is a public health issue. Uh, does that answer your question? I
2: Yes. That's a that's a, such a very good point. Um, you know, like that's something we try to emphasize a lot on Narcotica, that uh, not all drug use is problematic. Not all drug use automatically equals going to rehab, and it's sort of this backwards logic from the criminal justice side of things. That drugs will ruin your life, so we're going to ruin your life for you by creating a long history of you know uh, criminal record and and everything like that. So. Um, yes, thank you for for, for sharing that. Um, Tamara, um, so tell us a little bit about your background and how rural is Peoria, and I know I'm from Arizona, so there's a Peoria, Arizona, that's what I always think of first, but um, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got started in this work.
1: Um, well, Peoria is a fairly urban area, but we're surrounded by rural counties, um, so really working within a Urban and a rural environment. Um, I got started um, dealing with substance use disorder when my son Joshua died at the age of 16 from a heroin overdose. We didn't know, this was in 2012, we didn't know he was using drugs. We never got a chance to try and get him help. Um, He didn't reach out to us. I think because of shame and stigma, um, he didn't feel comfortable doing that. And he used for probably only six months before he uh, used in our home, overdosed, and he had aspirated and he died on the way to the hospital in the ambulance. So it was a complete shock to us. Well, you know, I was just had, teenagers going about living my life, and all of a sudden, my world is just upended. I didn't really know how I was going to get through it. Um, I always told my husband I could handle anything. I'm a really strong person, ex- except for losing a child. And it happened. And it brought me to my knees. I didn't know if I could go on. Um But I decided, you know, I could sit in a corner and cry for the rest of my life, or I could get up, tell Josh's story, try and make a difference, try and make sure no other family had to go through what we went through. And so within a couple of days of Josh dying, I just, you know, started researching. How did I not know that my son was using drugs? How did I not, not know that heroin was a problem? Um, cause I never really had that conversation. You know, I was talked about alcohol, marijuana, drinking, driving, you know, not assuming I would need to have that heroin conversation, you know? And at that point, I didn't even know, I didn't know what harm reduction was, but that was one of the first terms that I came upon when I was trying to figure out what happened. And as a physician, a scientist, it made perfect sense to me. Of course, we would want to try and reduce harm. Of course. We would want to keep people healthy through their drug use and not use the criminal justice system to take care of them, but to use public health and science um, to help people get through, whether they want to continue using drugs, whether they want help, you know, wherever they're at. And it was clear as day to me that that's where I wanted to go with supporting harm reduction. And that's when. We, fought, we formed Jolt Foundation and began just trying to blanket our community with naloxone. I also at that time joined GRASP, Broken No More, and Denise Cullen was the executive director then. And I, I started talking to her within days of Josh dying. And um, Grass stands for grief recovery after substance passing. So it's a peer-led group where only people are in the group that have actually lost someone to substance use and then broken them no more as a policy advocacy arm of the organization. But graphs saved my life because I learned from other moms, maybe some people tried tough love, maybe some people tried, okay, I don't believe in the word enabling, but supporting their person. But we all ended up in the same place, right? Our loved ones were gone. And we weren't at home at the time when Josh died, but at grasp, I also saw moms who were laying in the room next to their person and they, and they overdosed and died. So again, it, it gave me strength knowing there were so many other people out there and where I could share my story here, other people's, um, paths to ending up, um, was someone gone from substance use, and then, as I learned more about the drug war and the harms, um you know, I never I guess all these years before Josh died, I didn't really know what the drug war was. Oh, yeah, we're just I don't know, fighting the cartels and fighting drugs. I don't know, but once I understood what it was and what an abject failure, it has been. Of course, I you know, I want to fight against that. I mean, $40 billion um, or you know, well, however many billion, 40 years, and we are worse off than ever um, with deaths from substance use. It it doesn't work, right? So now, I mean, I'm, everything I'm about is, is fighting against that, fighting for humane, sane, um, science science science-based policies that will save lives and
2: keep people from incarceration yeah i i'm so glad to have you on to talk about this because it is a topic that a lot of people are going through i know a lot of people who have lost their children to overdose and you know talking about it brings it it more into the like it it makes people more comfortable about it because the whole prohibition thing makes people want to hide it because you're treated as, or, or perceived as being a, sh- a shameful person if you're using certain substance. That, that's that's the dominant narrative we get from our media. Um, so it's sort of even counterintuitive for for mothers like yourself um, to sort of stand up and say it's the system that caused this harm and not the substance itself. And it's been sort of a journey for you both. I, I, I assume. Um, Tamara, I read your essay in Elle magazine um, titled How I Stop Blaming Myself for My Son's Overdose Death, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, and I also read this interview you did with Maya Solovitz and Vice, where you were rightfully angry and grieving. You said you wanted everybody prosecuted about this issue. You were, you were mad about this. But what did it take to change your mind? So, yeah, in
1: the beginning yes, I was angry. I was grief stricken. I wanted someone to pay. So I wanted whoever sold the drugs to my child, my 16 year old, um, to be found and prosecuted. And at that time we thought we knew who did it. And this guy got arrested, but they could never prove that they, that he sold to to Josh. And so it was a, a minor charge, but I actually showed up in court. Um, and I mean, nothing came of that. And then I found out a year later, he wasn't even the person that sold to Josh. It was another, it was an 18 year old. And by that time I had moved back to anger and, you know, wanting justice stage. And I knew, and I could have pressed for something to happen, but of course I did not. I didn't want another life ruined. Um, yeah. And I wanted, you know, I went to talk to a lawyer about the ambulance because Josh had aspirated, and they didn't clear his airway, so they didn't oxygenate him. So, of course, then he goes into cardiac arrest. And one night, I was just sitting outside with one of my friends, who doesn't know anything about harm reduction, really, not, no interest in any of this. Any, and I was talking about the lawyer and going after the person who sold to Josh, and he said, "Tammy, what are you trying to do? What do you hope to accomplish?" And I said. I guess I want somebody to pay. And I just kind of looked inside myself and said, I'm done. And that this isn't going to happen anymore. And I was so fortunate to have good mentors like Dan Bid, Denise Cullen, um, Maya, um, Doe Simpkins. So people already in, you know, the harm reduction world that could help me see, even though none of them said a word to me to stop, they let me come to it. And it didn't take me long. It was probably six weeks, two months. But also for those out there who are grieving, part of the healing process is to forgive. Forgive yourself. Forgive your person. Forgive anyone who was involved you know, in the death for whatever reason. Because until you forgive, You you can't ever really begin to heal. So that was just part of the healing process for me. uh, And it really helped. And it, it let me be able to stand back, look at the big picture, not just my situation, not just my child. I always say it was no one's fault and it was everyone's fault, Josh's death, because it's a societal problem. We have a system set up for people to fail, for them to become incarcerated, for them to overdose. So, yeah, it was a short period of time. But it's really important to know that even myself, who is a big advocate and believes in harm reduction and against the wrong drugs, I was in that place for a short period of time. And we have some very powerful groups currently trying to pass groups of parents trying to pass very harmful legislation which will hurt our people but they have very powerful voices and but we have to understand what place they're in to be able to talk back to them i guess
2: i do want to get into the the policy a little bit but gretchen um tell me a little bit about how your mindset on this changed as well you know like and I guess, as a follow-up question, you know, do you experience a lot of stigma? Do you get a lot of, like, you know, astonished looks at PTA meetings or something like that? I mean, I, I, I get the feeling your kids are a lot older than that, so maybe PTA meetings are <laughs> out of the question. But
0: Yeah. Well, I certainly did in the beginning. I mean, it, it it does take courage, but you know that's the second part of the Serenity Prayer: courage to change the things that you can. And I and I did find very quickly um, so many people reaching out and saying thank you for speaking out because I, I, you know, it's like. It's like when I started speaking out, you could hear an audible sigh of relief, right, that people, other people were experiencing this, but it was so, so shame-based to, to talk about it and, and to talk about not only having a substance use disorder, but having the, uh, being incarcerated. You know, your son's a criminal. Well, know, yeah, I say, how dare they leave my son a criminal at 20 years old? You know, he, he's not. He's a good person. He, at that point, just had, you know, pop uh, on, on him. So when he was arrested, so, um, but I've changed what my, my approach to this was I didn't ever intend. I, I, you know, I'm, I was a dancer. I, I am a fashion show producer. I didn't, I've I had a lot of great roles in my life but the most important role to me was was mom I loved being a mother to two sons and when it turns out that they both and ended up having a you know pretty severe case of this disorder or whatever how you want to define it an illness or or a disease or again we prefer a disorder now um I, I learned everything I could about it because I didn't, I I thought if, if if somebody had said your son is a diabetic, would I l- learn everything I could possibly learn about it and try to usher them into the services? The, the problem with, you know, people looked at it like, well, they're an addict and they're a, a convict, you know, and, and so speaking out did take. Some strength, and I and I still feel the stigma. Stigma is the number one thing that we worked on from the very beginning. Was we realized we had to reduce stigma, and the more you dig into it, the more you realize that it's it's insidious. It's in all forms. I mean, it's throughout the criminal justice. It's throughout. You you say the parent groups, right? You got that too. They have got your kids a bad kid, my kids a bad, a, a good kid, my kid, uh, a, you know, somebody. Poisoned them with this pill. Well, your kid's a, a street addict. And, you know, so yeah, of course. Um, and my response to this is to be totally honest about it. I have nothing and I, nothing to be ashamed of. I have two beautiful, strong, resilient sons. I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet because it could have gone the other way so easily, right? And, and there's so many tragic stories like, like Tammy's. You know, I, I don't even know why they were, able to survive and thrive but now I'd like to think it's because they're doing what I'm doing they're speaking out they're passing out Narcan wherever they can they're talking about harm reduction and 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 you know so um Yes, I've experienced stigma. I still experience it, but it doesn't affect me that much. I'd sort of expect it to in a, in a certain way. I mean, even in, even in the healthcare community, you bring your kid in who's withdrawing and they've got an abscess and you can see the way they're treated, right? You can see it. And it's very painful as a mother to, to watch people be so turned off by your child, right? By, by your heart, by your heart and soul you know um but um uh, but uh i i do believe that in speaking out um we have made progress but there's always a little you know wrinkle that comes up and, and in this case it's a major roadblock in the fact that fentanyl is so present in the drug supply and 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 there's so many people dying. you know uh, uh, 2021, 107,000 something plus uh, lives lost. Um, that that now um, people that that are are not educated about um, uh, addictive illness or substance use disorders, uh, whatever term you prefer, um, are are fall prey to um, uh, scare tactics. And there's a lot of uh, scare tactics from criminal justice that would like to bring this issue uh, back into uh, criminal justice, and 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 um, rather than expanding what we really need, we really need more resources. And I'm not talking just treatment. I'm talking about uh, prevention and recovery services, recovery support services, and all that. We're we're dismally. Low on what we need in order to handle this public health crisis, right? And, and and to have this bubble up where we're now, we want to throw money at going after the supply side and 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 building up criminal justice. It, it's appalling. It, it didn't work. It hasn't worked. Drugs are still there. People are still dying we need a compassionate, tolerant, as Tammy says, science-based uh, approach to to this issue.
2: Yes, I agree. And um, it's challenging because people who are parents, are, um, it's a very emotional thing. you know. And so when you're saying we need harm reduction in, this, in these circles of, of children and, and young people with, with substance use disorders, I immediately, you know, it raises everybody's defenses and and it it is a it's a tricky concept. So, you know, I I'm, both of you taking on this challenge is is great. It's it's encouraging. Um wh- one of the things I really want to address, one of the misconceptions I want to focus on is this idea of tough love and and how that doesn't help. But maybe we should define what tough love is and then like why that doesn't work.
0: Um, can I say that we've been working on a, a true love, not tough love campaign for several years now with our moms united um Tender War on Drugs campaign. And and we worked really hard on the term true love. As we were like, was it real love? Is it what how do we combat this concept of tough love? I tried tough love. I tried a lot of things in the very beginning, like Tammy, I was, you know, I would I would find needles in the room and I'd throw them away and stuff from a far cry to where now I'm handing them out, right? You know, it guess it, it's again education and 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 if you can block the stigma, you can educate yourself, right? Um so, so the true love, not tough love, campaign was meant to debunk the whole concept of codependency, which was not based on fact or science. It was an easy answer that that, that healthcare providers. And I don't want to demonize them at all. I'm married to a psychiatrist who specialized in in in, in addiction medicine for youth. In fact. Um, but but it was an easy answers because nobody really knew, understood substance use disorders, and so they they were telling parents what they thought was the easy thing to do. Well, you know, parents are struggling; their kids are acting out terribly, and and, and the whole family's emotionally in a, emotional upheaval over it. So they say, well, you just have to you know let them hit bottom, and you have to just um, don't enable them. You know and uh, basically kick him to the curb. I know one mother that put her kid out in a tent. he was only you know sixteen years old she put him outside in a tent. I mean for God's sake, that was not the answer and I felt intuitively that it wasn't the answer. I loved nurturing my children and i and how dare you take that my right to nurture and protect my children away and call me an enabler codependent no. I know that my kids have something, have a disorder that will potentially kill them. The, de- the, 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 the danger is real. And I'm not gonna sit by and 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 wait till they die and then say, gee, maybe I should have done this, maybe I could have done this. Um so I I was constantly trying to to usher them into resources that would help them and telling them always, you are surrounded by true love. Your family loves you. When you find your way out of these maze, if we can't help you find your way out of this maze, we are there. We are there for you, so that they don't get that um, that that sense of oh hopelessness. Oh, I might as well keep using. I don't have a life left. You know, my family doesn't care. Well, nobody cares. You know, whatever. I didn't want them to ever feel that. And and so this campaign addresses that. You know that 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 uh, allows. Mothers to to listen to their own I- intrinsic uh, uh, maternal instincts rather than listening to the quote unquote uh, experts who will tell you to turn your back. I knew that the bottom for my kids would be death. I knew it, so I wasn't willing to go there, and that's what I'm encouraging others to do.
2: Yeah, um, one of my best friends died. From an overdose in summer 2021. Uh, yeah. Um, it, which I've actually been very lucky. I, I've been covering drug policy for a long time, and I don't know many people that have died from an overdose, which is sort of strange. It's mostly just been friends of friends or people that I wasn't that close with. But this was like the first time that this is somebody that was in my wedding, and we had done so much together. And so I went and helped his mother clean up his house, uh, basically. And we, she was very well, well aware of his drug use. Um, and I definitely didn't enable it. You know, that, that's a term that we should also unpack, I think, because it's very harmful. Um, but you know, she did all of this like love and just being like, Hey, if you're going to do heroin or fentanyl or whatever, you know, do it here, you know, so that they can be with you or something like that. There was a ton of naloxone that we found. Um, I found fentanyl test strips that I had mailed him. Um, and you know, so it's sort of like the opposite of like tough love. Like you do everything you can to do harm reduction and it's accidents still happen.
1: We see people on grasp that went along with those recommendations. So their person's already died and they feel terrible. They feel like Oh, well, my son, we threw my son out. He died homeless on the streets, cold, you know, unloved, no one by himself. And then they have to live with that after, even though they did what professionals told them. And, you know, just like Gretchen said, that they were told they were codependent enablers and throw them out and let them hit rock bottom. And then their people died. And then these parents and families have to go on the rest of their lives. Again, the blame thing, like, you know, how we talked about, you have to learn to forgive yourself. But what a horrible thing to have to live the rest of your life thinking you didn't, that you may have done the wrong thing. I mean, things will happen no matter what we do. Like I said, kids die in the room next to their parents who were never thrown out. But, you know, you don't want to have to, I guess, if you lose your person, you want to feel like, you did your best and have some peace with that and not, like I said, you know, unhoused on the street, dying alone with no one there.
2: Yeah. It's it's weird how when you lose somebody, you kind of internalize a lot of this grief and, and blame yourself. Like, I've done that so many times with lots of people that I've lost. With the friend that I just mentioned, I blame myself for not knowing that he was using opioids again because he used to call me on the phone and we would talk while he was on opioids and he would sound really high and that it would be hard to have a conversation sometimes, but it was, at least I'm there. If something happens, I can call somebody, you know? So I I blame myself when that happened, even though I did literally everything I could to make it so that he could be safer. And I I did the same thing when my friend committed suicide in 2009. Um, and I don't know where that comes from, where there's why, why we blame ourselves for this stuff, because when it really comes down to it, it's not anyone's fault. I, I just want to say that, you know, that, like it's 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 not your fault that Josh overdosed, camera. It's I'm sorry that it happened, but I, I, can you can you tell me a little bit about how, how you forgive yourself? Because when you're in the midst of this grief, that seems impossible.
0: It does. And, 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 and but at least at least if they died, they know that they were loved. That 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 the that the family and their world had not shut the door on them, and that, and I think, you know, it's a real fine line that we walk when when helping is helping and when helping is hurting. I, I guess with our campaign, what we're what we're saying to parents is, I can't walk in your shoes. I'm not. I'm not you. Only you know what goes on in your family and what you can deal with. So, you know, for me, I always carried insurance. So, if they were ready to get help, I could pay for it. Um, if they showed up on my doorstep, I, I'm talking about when they're in their 30s. You know, <laughs> late late 20s and 30s, then they can they can spend the night. I don't want them to die in the gutter. I, but but then but the if you would be in the in the morning. We will discuss what your options are. And that was the deal, you know. So everybody can, every parent, uh, family can can decide what's right. But the point is, don't it, it, throw off that shackle of that that label of codependent. Uh, and just like we throw off the shackle of of a habit, you know. I mean, the, it, it's a person that's struggling, or it's a you know. Uh, As a person that's struggling, if you're they're in the maze of their disease, and 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 for the family, as a person that's struggling, trying to to you know help and love the person into into wellness.
1: Yeah, I I mean I literally I mean I've told this story before, but I literally would obsess going through everything that I did wrong as a mother from the time Josh was born until the time he died. I blame myself and anything you could think of. No parent's perfect, right? You know, should. He probably had ADD. Should I have, I wasn't really a believer in medication. We just, you know, I didn't want him labeled. Should I put him on meds? Well, other parents blame themselves because they put their child on meds early and then died of an overdose. So yeah, I went through everything. And one day I said, I'm I'm going, this is going to destroy me if I don't figure out a way to move past this. So I just wrote down everything in a journal that I thought I did wrong. And and I just sat quietly at night and I talked to Josh and I told him I was sorry that I loved him. And and that I forgave myself and I forgave him. And it brought me peace. And, you know, and I cried and I talked to him. And but I knew, I mean, I, I always think grief, grief work is hard. And it has to be purposeful. You, There are a lot of people stuck in complicated grief that can't move past it. Um, you have to work on it. You have to consciously do the work. And that, and that one night is what I did. And it's helped me to go on. Because really, I mean, there were times where I didn't think I could go through another day,
3: another minute
1: without him. And I remember at the beginning, I thought, how could I ever laugh or smile again? And I really felt that way, that I would never laugh or smile again. And of course I do. I find joy in life and my family. And I do things for Josh that I think he might do, you know, have wanted to do. Um, so you do grief changes and you have to forgive yourself. And also what helped me was there was a reporter that came and he worked for our local newspaper. We spent hours together and he was actually a former heroin user. And so he told me his story and he came from a good family, Catholic upbringing, you know, no horrible home life, but he still ended up using heroin. And he helped me not to blame myself too, you know, cause I really, I didn't really know anybody who used heroin to talk to, to see like, well, why would they do that? And he explained the whole process, how it was exciting to think about it, exciting to go get the drug, you know, the whole planning, it wasn't always just the using, it was a whole process, and it it was just super helpful uh, to talk to someone who'd been through the life, because I always kept saying, why, Josh? Why? You're 16. Why would you use this drug? Why? Your life was cut so short um, from using this drug why did you feel the need to do it and i know and my husband understands it better than i he's like tammy he just wanted to try it he you know it was fun it made him feel good um so my husband's been a big support and helped me to understand drug use because he does have some experience with that in the past which i have not you know except for i guess legal (laughs) legal drugs um which is arbitrary by the way too right (laughs) um so yeah it's just about yeah you just gotta let it go you know you have to if you're gonna survive it you can't play that i you know i always tell our grass members you got to stop the what ifs and whys because it will drive you mad and you have to forgive yourself you know otherwise you won't make it through this
3: We want to take a pause here just for a second to let you guys know about an exciting new development at Narco Media. Most of you are probably aware by now that a major focus of this show is reframing the public discourse about people who use and sell drugs. Well, we now have an opportunity to platform the voices and stories of people who use drugs. Our new show, Naturally Noncompliant, will be a storytelling podcast by and for people who use drugs and who struggle to adhere to the methadone clinic system's probation-like demands. In a way, methadone is the closest thing to safe supply that we will get anytime soon in the U.S. In the middle of the worst rates of overdose deaths we've seen in this country's history, it's time to rethink how methadone is delivered. We need to make treatments with medications for people who are struggling with opioids into something that is more attractive and less punitive. The Naturally Noncompliant Podcast is the first storytelling podcast by and for people who use drugs. We want to counter the redemption narrative that a person has to quit using drugs or have a goal of quitting or denounce drug use in order to have a good life. We're really excited to bring you this show and hope that you find it entertaining. The first episode was published recently and we'll be putting out around an episode a month. We really appreciate your ongoing support and participation as we work to reframe public perception of people who use and sell drugs. More information about the podcast as well as information about an exciting upcoming conference related to methadone reform will be included in the show notes. As always, thank you guys so much for supporting us as we fight to reframe the conversation in the public sphere about people who use and sell drugs. And now, back to our regular programming.
2: I think um, those are all some really great ways of handling grief. Um, and the thing is, it's like, I talk to people that I've lost. Like, I don't, I sometimes question myself. I'm always second-guessing myself, and and. I sometimes like, am I, am I crazy talking to my dad or my friends that are, I've lost? I, I don't think I am because um, they exist in some form inside of me, which is kind of metaphysical a little, but it's what I believe. And I'm talking to that part of myself, really. Um, and I know that the people that I've lost wouldn't want me to carry shame or 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 you know all of this blame that i put on myself so it, it is hard to let go of that i feel like i'm still struggling with that in so many ways um but it's what they would want is for me to move on from the shame and just because when somebody dies i believe that they lose everything um except for love and peace they they lose all the anger they lose all the resentment and, and what's left is, is, is just love and peace. And that's what you can interact with, with them. And so I hope that's helpful for people that are listening to this and like may have lost somebody, but. Um...
1: Me too. It's hard. It's a, it's a terrible journey and the the journey will never be over until we die. And well, hopefully not then either, but um, yeah, it's. It changes, you know, grief changes, the pain changes, it becomes more bearable, you know, but it's always, always there. Um, But I always know Josh would not want me to, he'd be like, mom, you have to live your life. He would be mad at me. The kids love to have fun and laugh. And so I always try and remember that, that he would be like, what are you doing? You get up, you live life and, you know, everything I do every You know, I used to make all the naloxone kits on my table myself when I didn't have anybody. And I thought every one of these is potential to save somebody. You know, um, somebody won't be. I say, I, I don't. I want, don't want anybody to be me. So every naloxone kit that goes out, every clean syringe that somebody doesn't get, bacterial endocarditis or HIV or Hep C. It's all, I know Josh 100% would want me to do this. And I know he would be on board with syringe access programs and um, safe supply, all that stuff that's killing our people, you know?
0: I was just going to say, um, you know, Tammy's story is so beautiful of walking through uh, kind of the steps of, of grief. And, um, you know, if you can't, if you can't, uh, process the grief in this kind of uh, wonderfully uh, introspective way that Tammy described, and, and thank you for being you because I think you're helping a whole lot of other people walk through this these steps. But if you don't do that, you're left with anger. And, and, and anger is so uh, non-productive. You know, and and then and, and then again leads to the kinds of policies that we're talking about. Uh, you know, the drug war being not a war on drugs, it's a war on people. Um, a, a, you know, and particularly people of color and poverty, as we know. Um, so, but but and that's and that fear um, leads to anger because we don't like to feel fearful. So fear. <laughs> uh, Fearmongering tactics are effective in in and throwing people into an angry mode. Um, but but just listening to Tammy talk about the process of, of uh, introspective not only forgiving you, forgiving Josh, forgiving you know. And, and it's hard, you know. I my sister lost her son at seventeen in a ski accident, so I've I've witnessed this process before. And and journaling is helpful and all those things. But if you're met Right at the moment of extreme grief, with um, with somebody who says, "Hey, I will make those people pay for it, and it'll feel better." They're never going to feel better. They can go through this whole thing and they've still lost their child, and and but then they're wreaking destruction on other families because there is no big bad guy out there that 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 that's gonna by getting him we're gonna solve this issue.
2: Yeah. And I think we hear this story so much more often. Maybe I don't know how it's quantified, or maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but it seems like more often, some a mother loses their son or or, or daughter to uh, to an overdose, and then they become like super gung ho about the police. There's a press conference with the sheriff's department. Um, but this is why I want to highlight sort of the the opposite example. I mean, there's this story of Joy Stampler Fishman. She was married to Jack Fishman, who with uh, Moses Lewinstein invented the drug naloxone in 1961. I'm sure you're both very familiar with the story, but for listeners who are not like um, Joy Fishman lost her son to a heroin overdose in 2003. And her husband had invented the overdose antidote and she didn't even know about it. Like for whatever reason, like uh, that just never came up at the dinner table. Like, oh, I, I made this drug that and Fishman. Didn't really live to see widespread use of naloxone. Um, what, what, I mean, you, you tell me what your thoughts are on this story because it's interesting.
0: Well, it, you know, having met Joy, it, it, isn't it? It's it's like it's like the plumber's toilet never gets fixed, and the you know it's it's a a, a deep irony that uh, that your husband had had created what we are all using to save lives now and so so many lives. Um, and, but in her own personal, um, you know, my husband's a psychiatrist and he has a daughter that's got some illness and, but he can't seem to be effective because he's the father, not, not, you know, it's, uh, that's my perspective is that, that, that life is full of ridiculous ironies and, um, you know, (laughs) and even when we know, uh, um, what we, what we think we were, we're well-educated in this, it still can happen right under our noses. Right. And, and, um, you know, I want to say that even though both of my sons are in long-term recovery and, 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 and 19 years with one and, and, and eight with another, um, you know, I, I know things can happen. I, I, my son just had to have surgery, uh, you know, you know, fairly, uh, painful process and had to be put on narcotics for you know a two-day stint that scared to death I was you know he was scared I was scared we were all scared but you know we surrounded him with love and 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 he and he had the strength to get past it but I'm just saying that things life can turn on a dime you got to really um and, and my thing is, I I always want all my loved ones to know that they're loved. I say it all the time. I say it too much. I, you know, well, yeah, mom, yeah, 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 But I can't help it. I've got to tell everybody I love that. I love them every day because life is short and and life can turn on a dime.
2: I want to talk a little bit about policy. I know that both of you uh, do some policy work. And, and that's really important to, like, sort of take this conversation to the next level. Um, uh, Gretchen, for example, I, I, I believe you're a vocal proponent of uh, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker's Test Act. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this and, and what's going on with this law and how it will help people.
0: Well, I mean, just like marijuana, when uh, when we couldn't research marijuana, the benefits or, or the uh, or the dangers of marijuana because it was a Schedule One. I mean, this is the same thing. If we push, fentanyl has been used in hospital settings for. For as long as I have been alive, if not longer, and and so it's not there are benefits to it. It's a shame that it's 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 so much in our uh, in the the drug supply on the streets right now. But it doesn't mean that it should be a Schedule One. I mean, there are other properties, and if we make it a Schedule One, that we can't research those other. It, It's like tr- throwing away the, the, the baby with the bathwater, right? So yes, I, I think uh, it's very dangerous to return once again. Okay, now the fentanyl crisis, we get to return to, to the drug war. Uh, and I think it's a trillion dollars, by the way, Tammy, you were uh, talking about, you know, yeah, you were on the, it was, it, yeah, so it's, why would we go back, uh, you know, to that kind of thinking? Um, and, and And when people say fentanyl, Poisoning, as opposed to overdose, there's a purpose for that. That there's you're you're using language that makes that that elicits a, a um, criminal justice response, right? Somebody is doing something to another person to hurt them, rather than somebody's taking. So so we say no, your drug supply. Use test strips, you know. And some people want fentanyl, um, so so the test strips aren't going to work in that situation, but some are, you know. They're using cocaine and they don't want to. So, the, so any of these harm reduction uh, tactics can work. I, I think I'm getting off the topic a little bit, but yes, I am a promote, proponent of the DAS Act uh, because, uh, because basically I do not want to see a return to prohibition and punitive prohibitionist policies.
2: Tamara, tell us a little bit about uh, your advocacy work and policy work with uh, Broken No More.
1: Well, we support a lot of, you know, the same things that, um, Moms United does, of course. Um, Yeah, just against prohibition. Our current interest right now is fighting um, back against the fentanyl, the the parent fentanyl groups that are trying to pass, um, well, federally to have fentanyl declared a weapon of mass destruction, um, trying to pass legislation state by state, um, ramping up the punishments for selling fentanyl, uh, possessing fentanyl, and God forbid somebody dies from fentanyl, pretty much, you know, resulting in negating all the good Samaritan laws we've worked so hard to have in place in many states makes them fairly useless because of fentanyl's involved, you know, with some of this legislation, Um, you know, then we're getting into lifelong sentences for the seller and, And we know that the seller is often a friend or a uh, spouse, you know, someone close. And that's who goes down for these. The majority of the time when the drug-induced homicide laws are used, they're used by someone fairly close to uh, the person who dies. Um, So, yeah, and I I, I just got a message yesterday in Illinois. There's um, two Republican senators that want to pass. Um, legislation for more harmful or more harsh penalties for fentanyl. So it's happening right here in Illinois. So we're on the phone with the ACLU today. Okay, I'm going to write a letter as a mother and as, you know, uh, executive director of Broken No More. And we're trying to find another mother to write to say we don't believe in this, you know. So it's, I was just saying, oh, we don't have, nobody's pressing for that in Illinois. And it just came out yesterday. So, um, yeah, so we just fighting back, you know, all help, you know, help write letters, testify in other states, anything that we can do to fight back against uh, the drug induced homicide laws and the ramping up of the drug war. These are, these, all this legislation is going to kill people. More people will die. No one will call 911 if they can get a life sentence, you know? We've just sentenced people to death by by pushing for these policies, and that's, it's being done by people who want to prevent more deaths, but what they're trying to do is not supported by science and not supported by evidence and when it's actually going to do the opposite. So one thing I think we do have in common is we all want a safe supply. Right. Isn't that what it's about? They, you know, we want to not come down on fentanyl because it's killing people. So, But how we get to that safe supply is how you know some of us may differ. You know, I I I, I've thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. You know, for the last ten years, and I can't come to any other answer besides a legalized, regulated drug supply. I don't. I can't find another way that our people aren't going to die. You know, and I get it. People don't want to hear that. I understand. But I don't know how we're going to stop the death. I don't. I I mean, because besides stopping people from using drugs, which we all know will never, ever happen, it shouldn't have to happen. We should be able to use safely. Right. Um, But, yeah, so I don't know. I just, you know, uh, around and around in my mind. And I, I don't know any other way. But I think we are so far from that here in the United States. Because we're all about punishment. And stigma and judgment, and that certain drugs, i.e., alcohol, marijuana for a lot of people, are okay, but certain drugs aren't. And it's not based on anything, but that's stigma, I guess, and just moralistic attitudes, which again, more people are gonna die. We gotta, we gotta step back and take a look at the big picture.
0: And I totally agree with you, Tammy. Uh, you know, uh, regulated supply, decrim, legalization. Yeah. We're, we're all. I don't know what else to do. I don't know. It sounds radical, but it's not when you think about it, because these other tactics, the drug-induced homicides and, and how they are plundering our Good Samaritan laws. Just think if anybody hesitates to give somebody Narcan, if they hesitate because uh, we're going to lose that life. Uh, they just leave they leave
1: they drop them in front of a hospital we don't know what they took you know
0: that's right and and so it's 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 almost criminal to to be scaring people into not helping and saving a life that's right there in front of them and they can save it and with Narcan I mean everybody should have Narcan we believe that every single person on the planet should carry Narcan period you know, whether you are in denial that it, it might be in your family, because it probably is, and you, you yeah, are not addressing it. But but if not, um, as, a, as a good Samaritan, wouldn't you want to save a life? And it's so easy, it's so safe. There should be nothing that stops a person from going up and giving Narcan to somebody who's overdosed. There should be nothing uh, that stops them. Uh, but what's stopping them is stigma, and these kinds of laws that deter people from doing what human beings usually do to help one another.
2: It is very frustrating because all those policy changes are moving so slowly and then a lot of them are getting rolled back. Like this week, the FDA was saying, oh yeah, I think we're, we're pretty much at the point where we're almost totally sure that naloxone should be over the counter. And it's like, what the fuck? We've been talking about this for a decade at least. And it's in the meantime, while the FDA Decides to figure out this concept. Um, people are dying, and it's it's this is a huge public health emergency, and we're not doing even nearly enough to to start even addressing it. Safe supply. I know that's a counterintuitive idea. When I first heard of it, I was like, huh? Ah. but that you know, the other option is death. That's literally it. And it's like, if you want to offer like you know half measures, um, like instead of meth and st- give people Adderall or Ritalin or instead of uh, heroin, give people opium or, you know, even like
1: prescription. I mean, other countries do that, right? Canada, there's um, some pilot programs, other countries that get um, certain people that meet certain criteria, they get prescription heroin to use and they know what they're getting every time. They don't have to spend time on the streets. They're not involved in the criminal justice system and they get their medication and go about their day. What's so
2: terrible about that? I I kind of want to talk about, um, you know, the stigma against medication-assisted treatment or just treatment. (laughs) Um, Tamara, I I, I know you're a a, a buprenorphine provider, correct? So, like, but there is this attitude that like abstinence is the only way, and um, that certain medications like buprenorphine or methadone or even naltrexone are trading one addiction for another and this is just so patently false and a lot of people hear this idea though and then they're afraid to get people on treatment and then something happens with fentanyl or something worse you know like so how do you address this stigma and like tell me a little bit about that
1: well it comes from several different areas um from family members who, who discourage their loved ones from getting on it because they say you're like you said, you're just trading one addiction for another. you don't need that medicine. I've had patients that have to hide it from their family, that they're in recovery and coming to get buprenorphine so that they don't use and die. They have to hide it from their family. Um, patients themselves have internalized that oh, I don't want to just be I don't want to be addicted to some to buprenorphine. You know, I, you know, I just want to try it on my own. But we know abstinence-based treatment for opiate use disorder has a 90% failure rate. And with fentanyl in the equation, now it can be a death sentence. Um, and then from society in general, from even the the medical profession that doesn't understand it and doesn't encourage it. We know it reduces mortality by 50% when people are on medications for opiate use disorder. So the benefits and the science is clear. Um, there's also a lot of misunderstanding from provi- even people who pro- supposedly are Buprenorphine providers that oh, well, it's just for detox. They're just going to use it for a little bit. Well, no. You can be on this medication for as long as you need to until you feel. And you know, I tell my patients, you know, what if you've got to be on this for the rest of your life? Who cares? I got to take my diabetic medication for the rest of my life. You know. It's not the end of the world. Um, you have a brain disorder and it's a chronic relapsing brain disorder. And some people that have used for a lot of years, it takes a very long time for the brain to begin functioning again like it did before the use of opiates. So, you know, it's not a quick fix. It's not take this for a couple months. There you go. See you later. People need to be encouraged. It's okay.
0: There's stigma also in the recovery community, you know, those that believe in abstinence-based versus those that are on that. And um, and we've been working for quite a while trying to bring the harm reduction world and, and the abstinence-based only world together. And, you know, really what we're saying is that abstinence is one of the tools of harm reduction, like decriminalization is a tool of harm reduction. So but but I, you know, I'm kind of living that because both of my sons found. Different routes to the recovery. You know, my, my younger son had tried everything, you methadone, uh, you name it. But in the end, he went the abstinence only. Uh, and I would say it's because he went the embrace of recovery community. You know, he, he, he surrounded himself with, re- with people in recovery who did fun things together you know, surfing and biking and, and, and that kind of thing. The other son had found his way to recovery with methadone. And and it allowed him to go back to school and get his degree and all that kind of stuff. So in our family, you know, we, we believe that in the, we, we absolutely believe in the many pathways to recovery. You know, I don't care what it is that you do to stay alive and thrive. Um, if if it works for you, then that's fine. But unfortunately, you're right. There there is so much stigma associated and, and ignorance about about it. it. It works. It keeps people alive. And we have to redefine what successful recovery is. Anyway, you know, if a person has friends and relationships, and they 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 uh, spend their day in productive endeavors, you know, they're in recovery. Whatever they want to define that as being works for me you know, if if it feels like recovery, it's recovery. And so we have to stop these like sort of silos of medication assisted treatment works. It's been proven over, over so many years to work. So why is it
2: demonized? Yeah. Why isn't it over the counter? You know, why we could be flooding the streets with methadone and buprenorphine and everybody could have it and wanted it. And i the worst thing that could happen is that people get high from it like that's not a big deal to me and the the best thing that could happen is we save a lot of people's lives um we cut into cartel profits that aren't you know people would buy less street drugs you know it's, it's just i sometimes feel like i'm crazy when i have to keep arguing these points over and over again and then things like the rainbow fentanyl scare come along or weapons or, or, or let's make fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction and it's like you have to put out those fires and, and you can't even talk about what's really effective and safe supply and just ending this whole idea of treating people as less than just because they have a substance use disorder it's just very frustrating but uh, yeah, right there's
1: so much so many myths and misinformation out there we do spend a lot of time countering back with science and Uh, you know, explanations, because people just jump on the bandwagon, you know, like about the Halloween candy and fentanyl. And it's, you know, it's all nonsense, but it, it, it it makes its way into mainstream media, you know, and uh, people believe it. So yeah, we waste a lot of our time countering that, those things.
2: How can people get involved with, uh, with, with your movement?
0: Well, I think it's it's probably imperative that people get involved right now because you're hearing. Uh, since we started Moms United in 2009, I've seen countless moms groups come on board and start up, and and uh, unfortunately, some of them are the you know moms against fentanyl and and all, you know all that that kind of thing. So, it, it, you know it compassion and tolerance is a little quieter. than than fear-mongering and scare tactics. So you you have to just be a constant, reasonable voice about, well, what's the end game? We wanna save lives, we want want to have, uh, we want people to enjoy health and happiness, right? Bottom line, so if you, so get involved. I think there's strength in numbers, and we'll keep putting out the, the the sensible science-based compassionate tolerant message with all of our campaigns. So how can you get involved? Um our the website is um, momsunited.net or anewpath.org and um and then uh, it, and certainly I will speak I'll speak for Tammy because I so um respect her organizations. If you have lost a, a child to substance Um, certainly reach out to GRASP and and Broken No More if you want to get involved in actively trying to um, uh, create a more compassionate, tolerant society that embraces sane, humane drug policy.
1: Yeah, to get involved with um, GRASP, we do have a... um a Facebook page, which it's um, it's closed. Only people who've lost someone to substance use um, can um, join. Um, We also have 125 face-to-face chapters throughout the United States and Canada. And you can go to our uh, website, grasphelp.org and it will have the different um, face-to-face chapters listed. To get involved with Broken No More, we also have a separate closed Facebook page for that um, but really we all have to I mean yes there are federal issues that we need to stand up for you know like the fent- fentanyl weapon of mass destruction thing but some of this is a state to state fight so if you see legislation which is harmful you have to call your legislator there, there might be a line of people supporting Harsh fentanyl penalties, well, we need a line on the other side saying we're not for that, that my child died, but I'm for, uh, you know, uh, sensible drug policy. So get involved. And it's hard going up and talking in front of the legislature is hard. Or support your or your your local harm reduction or agencies. The people that are out there doing the work, fighting, writing letters, support us, back us. Um, show up with a sign if we need you to at the Capitol. You know, are what we have to make our voices heard because I I feel like we're not super vocal sometimes because we are just living our lives, trying to do the right thing, supporting. Good policy, but we're not, you know, we're not up in your face with the with the fear and hate and vengeance that's going on. Um, and that's what we're kind of actively trying to do. Gretchen, myself, a bunch of other moms groups, we're really trying to draw together to get a coordinated effort throughout the United States. Instead of this group here, this group there, you know, however that's going to look, you know, it's always, well, who's it, you know, Um, but we have to, the families that believe in harm reduction and sensible drug policy have to get together and stand together to, um, to fight against all all the harmful legislation
2: coming through or we will lose.
1: I mean, it passed in Colorado. There was some harmful legislation that went
2: through. Yeah. Yeah. I actually wanted to mention that because it's, but, I think what the law was is like uh it's now a felony if you have more than a gram of fentanyl, but it's like it's a mixed into a powder. It's like it's so ridiculous how you can't measure it that way, and then you're given these harsher penalties while at the same time coming out and being like uh Colorado just legalized psychedelics and and they wanna they're they're usually progressive on certain things and and like
1: yeah, I was shocked, I was shocked that it went through in Colorado, you know but yeah. I know people who are on the ground there and said it was a line of, of, of people pushing for this, of parents. And we had one of our board members from broken no more there, you know, for the other side. So it's, it can be brutal for us on the other side, you know, um, because there's such anger coming and, and, and wanting these harmful policies uh, started. It's, it can be a little, you know, rough, like, and and some of us are strong enough. I can stand up. Gretchen can stand up. I don't care what they say to me. But not every grieving parent is in a place to do that and take heat. I mean, and some people never will be, you know, so the few of us that are willing to, I mean, we ha- we're raising our voices and saying, whoa, we're here. You know, that's why Gretchen and I are here today, because we know how important it is.
0: Uh, you know, I always say to people that I wasn't comfortable speaking out in the very beginning. You know, I, I, but I did it because I thought this is not about you and your fear of speaking to people. This is about your story, and 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 that it needs to be told so that that others can benefit. Um, but I always tell people, speak out if you're not if you're not comfortable speaking out in public speak to your neighbors, speak to your, your family. Cause families can be, you know, think that you don't want to talk about your kid that's having a problem because it's uncomfortable. We'll speak to them about it. Uh, you know, so, so at whatever level you can speak out, those little quiet voices make a big difference. And, or
1: write a letter and off the Like I hate writing letters. So like if somebody could, you know, write the letters for me, that'd be fantastic. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there's some people who are really good writers, but there's no way they're getting up, you know, doing an interview or getting on stage anywhere. So, yeah, use your talents and push for the right thing to happen.
2: You know, I really think at the core of all of this um, is love, you know, which I know sounds totally cheesy, but it's true. I mean, even the mothers who fall on the more prohibition side, I mean, they may be misguided, um, but it is coming from a place of love. Like they want to protect their kids. or they've lost somebody and but it, it we need the love part is great but i think we also need to use community and evidence um and and, and both of you are, are doing a great job of providing that so thank you so much um is there anything else on this topic you want people to know about anything we might have missed in this conversation or anything else yeah, I'd
0: like to highlight the Empty Chair at the Holiday Table campaign because it's starting next week again. Um, it's our 10th annual for Moms United. And it's, it's, it's you know, the holidays can be such a, 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 well, it can be a beautiful time, but it can be a really tough time for for somebody, uh, families that are, you know, kind of struggling with, with uh, uh, substance use disorder in their families and, and, and that they're missing at the holiday table due to incarceration or, um uh, stigma is such a big one, um, or drug war violence, um, or you know, overdose, death. So um, a lot of times people don't talk about it. So we encourage people to step the chair, talk about that person. I remember after my um, my nephew died, and it was a ski accident, and my son was in in jail. And, you know, really struggling. And nobody in my family would talk about it. They talked about Eric who had died because that was tragic. You know, it was a ski accident. But they didn't even, they acted like it was too uncomfortable to even talk about my son. And it hurt so bad. And and I think that and that was part of the reason I wanted to, to do this campaign, uh, to use this opportunity during the holidays to talk about how, you know, really the stigma the chair that had the stigma that can so easily lead to the chair over the overdose, uh, because we're not dealing with it, we're not making them feel loved. As you say, it's about love. Um, and certainly when you incarcerate somebody that, that kind of alienation, I think it, it took my son longer to stop seeing himself as an, an ex convict that didn't deserve a life than it did for him to accept the fact that he had sort of conquered his, his addiction to heroin. You know, it was, um, so, so, uh, this is an opportunity to talk about those issues in a very, um, and to share in a very visceral way uh, what the war on drugs is, has done to decimate families across all cultures, socio and economic, uh, you, you know. So um, I just wanted to share that since we're just about to begin that that annual
2: campaign again. Uh, Tamara, did you have anything you wanted to add to that?
0: Well, what you
1: said about love, you know, as moms fighting against the war on drugs. It is all about love. It's, you know, I'm not able to express my love directly to my son, but it is because of the deep love I have for him that this is the work I do. Um, and like I said, because I don't want any other mom to be me. And and I love, you know, other families and care about them. I love my buprenorphine patients, that my moms that, you know, I'm one of the few people that OBGYNs that treat patients with um, suboxone, only 2% of OBGYNs do that in this country. And I see the beauty and love that come for these mothers that are are on buprenorphine and they get to go home with their kids. You know, DCFS isn't taking them and they get their lives back and have a job. And and there is hope. There's always hope. And that's why I keep doing this because I have hope for the future. I have hope that we as humans will do the right thing and continue to show love and empathy for each other. And hopefully we can move forward with our policies instead of the current trend of going backwards because I'm tired of all the dying and I, 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 won't, I don't want anybody else to have to come to grasp. That would be my dream one day. I know that'll never happen. But no more families devastated by overdose and by the world drugs.
2: I know it sounds like a very distant future, but I believe it's possible. I really do, and I'm gonna do whatever I can uh, to, to help people fight for that. You know, so okay, yeah. me too. I'm with you. All right, <laughs> I'm um, a hopeful person. <laughs> where can people find you on social media? Uh, we have a Facebook page for both
0: A new path and for uh, Moms United. That's pretty pretty active as well. uh. So Moms United to End the War on Drugs on on Facebook is where we interact the most.
1: Yep, same thing. They can check Grasp on on Facebook, Broken No More on Facebook, Um, Schult Harm Reduction on Facebook, Um, our syringe exchange program. Um,
2: Great. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. Gretchen, Tamara, it's been great talking with you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you
1: for having us.
3: Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Narco Media. Co-hosted and co-produced by Zachary Siegel, Troy Farah, Christopher Marath, and Aaron Ferguson. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at Narcocast.com and support us by joining our patreon just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica we are excited to announce that a portion of the proceeds from the show will now go toward the urban survivors union which is the national drug users union a group of directly impacted advocates for drug user health in america this is the way social change happens from the ground up And we are so excited to support this group that is doing such important work to fight stigma against people who use drugs. If you're a patron, you also get free stickers which are personally mailed to you. You can also request a shout-out on the show. And now, patrons can even get 30% off of merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs. One that says, there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always, we are so grateful to the folks that make this show possible. A little goes a long way, so thanks for making Narcotica happen. We're ad-free and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon just isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. You can also rate us wherever you get your podcast. Our theme music is by Glassboy and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad1, drug using producer. Well, I guess that's all. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Until next time.